And God bless the reading of his holy word. You would turn with me to John chapter 16, which is the principal passage. And by the way, it is the continuation of the exposition of the book of John, which we did some time back in 2018 and continued into 2019 and 20. I will not read this as we have read it already. That is verses 1 through 15. But I will proceed to explain what this is all about. And it is one of the upper room, it is part of and one of the upper room discourses of our Lord. Judas left earlier to betray Christ, so it was without his presence. As it says in John 13, 30, he then having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. The sop was whatever that uh, bread is, like what would be dipped in a hot drink or in wine and then eaten, which when Christ did that, indicated who it would be that would betray him. And of course, that was Judas Iscariot, to which he said, in the context of that moment, go and do it quickly. The Lord Jesus gave his followers, after Judas had left, some last minute instructions. In verse 1, these things I have spoken unto you, that you should not be offended, that you don't stumble in your faith. He called them. He spent the better part of the last three years of his life with them, teaching them the word of God as his disciples. He said to them along the way, recorded earlier in this book, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He did not want them to fail their faith. After all, he invested so much in them, just as he has invested much in the lives of many of us who are his people now. This is how bad it would get when their master finally returns to heaven as he predicts to them. He said that they, in verse 2, shall be put, they shall put you, that is, out of the synagogues. That is, they're going to excommunicate you from the church. You will no longer be considered believers by the leadership of Israel, by the ministers and the elders of the church. And also in verse 2, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. There are religions that we know that do this, but can you imagine that the true religion is also guilty of this? And not only in Christ's time, but even at other times in history, during the Crusades and even later in the British Isles and, and in other parts of the world. Ones that you have to, peer, uh, to fear the most are those that are within the household of God. And the house that is divided against itself shall not stand. In Acts 26, 9 through 11, this is an example of how execution as well as excommunication awaited them in Acts 26, 
9 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul recalling to uh, a king and to his council what happened to him and how he was before he was converted to Christ. I barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, which, things, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints, many Christians, that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. He was an advocate or a lawyer, prosecuting lawyer in their case cases. And that was part of his training too, was in law. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme, meaning to deny the name of Jesus Christ. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange or foreign cities. They think that they actually do service. And in the case of the Apostle Paul later on, he would say how he counted this part of his righteousness, that he was zealous, more zealous than all of the Pharisees put together because of his untoward behavior toward this growing cult in their midst, which was the way, called the way, amongst other things. The way, after our Lord Jesus, the way was the way, the truth, and the life. And this, of course, was until the Lord converted Saul, the persecutor, and made him Paul the propagator of that same faith that he once tried to destroy. Why does the world do this at all? such as the Apostle Paul. It's because they don't know the Lord, as our Lord indicated in verse 3 of our passage in John 16. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now, maybe we haven't experienced all that much of this in our land, but I, I, I do know brethren who have in other countries, and other lands, and we hear about it, and we know about it. The underground church, for example. Why are they called the underground church? Because they're persecuted and are driven underground. This had to be probably the loneliest and most fearful time in the lives of Christ's disciples. He said, and because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart, as they anticipated worse, because now they have the protection of their Lord. Who's, who's standing in the gap, who is the one who is mediating for them, and of course, who is their leader. Why should they not feel this way? What from our passage would show us, would be evidence in their not feeling this way, lonely and fearful of the times, fearful of their lives? Well, first, Christ Christ is still with them. And as I have noted, he has been protecting them against their enemies, especially with his word, and even with his power in some instances where he would bring them to safety, away from 
where they may be overtaken at some junction. And now he's about to leave them and return to his Father in heaven. Well, because of that, Christ realizes that it is time to prepare them with some very important information for the future, for the future of their faith, for the future of the church that they would be used in building for Christ. It's through them that Christ will build his church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In verse 4, he said, But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, and will, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. Also, Christ wants them to know where he is headed. As we note in verse 10, he is headed where? To his father. And then he will see him no more. In verse 5, he says, But now I go my way to him that sent me, his father. And none of you asked me, Where goest thou? Well, there was one occasion when Peter began to ask him, Where are you going? But in the midst of that conversation, he got sidetracked and became fearful of the consequences of Christ not being there. And so did not really consider his destination, but was more focused on the fact of his leaving them and their being without him. Unless Christ leaves, the Holy Spirit won't come. Notice in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. In other words, the disciples will never be alone. While Jesus, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, next to the Father, who is the first person of the Blessed Trinity, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit, will be with them. He will come to them. He will be sent by the Father and the Son to be with them forever. He is God's life-giving power. In one place, in John 7, 37 through 39, there's so much packed into this book of John, into this uh, very spiritual and very personal letter and gospel of John. It says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, before you start to conjecture what those rivers of living water are and how they're going to be gushing out of you and out of your soul, read on to the next verse, which explains who that is. But this spake he of the Spirit which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, let me make this point clear. That is, the Holy Spirit 
is actively at work. He was actively at work in the creation. He was actively at work in providence, in the preservation and provision and protection of God's people. He's active in redemption and the new birth and regeneration. As our Lord says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so he's been around. He's not just in heaven waiting for the signal to come down. He's been at work all along. But now he has a special work that is going to be inaugurated by Christ's return in the coronation of Christ and then in the Father and the Son's sending of the Holy Spirit, even as the Father and the Holy Spirit sent Christ previously. He is God's indwelling presence, as we noted in our reading of John 14, 16, and 17. It says, and I will pray, or he said, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, Heracles, which could mean also helper, or advocate, as we will hear about shortly. Even the spirit of truth. He is the one who is called the spirit of truth. Why? Because he is the one is he of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity is the particular person that has as his expertise the teaching of the Word of God in the hearts and lives of God's people. Whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and shall be in you. You already know him, but you will know him all the more, and especially when he comes in power at Pentecost shortly. Jesus goes on to say in, uh, in verse 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. And this is to say that, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all dwell within us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is why we believe that in the Holy Supper or the Lord's Supper, that it is a spiritual feast, that Christ is not in there by his very presence, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit, he is there in the Supper. But that's another discussion for that time when we will have the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit also is our resident teacher, is what I like to call him, our resident teacher. Why? He is living right within us. We don't have to go anywhere to a class. We don't even have to go online, on Zoom, on Thursday, to have the teaching of the Holy Spirit. He is always teaching us when we are open to the Word of God, when we take up the things of God in the Scriptures. It says in verse 26 of John 14, and I hope that you're following and you're tracking with me, okay? But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Imagine that. This is better, in a sense, it is better than Christ only being there and our sitting at his feet because we won't always have him. Even the disciples proved that. But the Holy Spirit, forever. And he is the resident witness within us who empowers us to also be witnesses to our risen Lord. In Acts 1, 8. Acts 1, 8. 
but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Imagine that. Through the Holy Spirit's working in their lives, empowering them, witnessing to them the risen Savior in their hearts, they will also in turn be empowered to witness Christ to the world. This is why the Holy Spirit is imperative to be in our lives. And why we must pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us in obedience to Christ. And now he will be the paraclete, that is the comforter, and by the way, he is also a comforter as far as helping us in times of desperation. Or advocate with the Father and the Son. He will be the paraclete or the advocate. An advocate is someone who advocates for your cause, for the cause of Christ, but also for the cause of the church. For the cause of God's people. Now Christ is an advocate first. So the Spirit of God is an advocate after Christ. But he's an advocate of another kind. As is noted in 1 John 2, 1. 1 John 2, 1. It speaks of Christ being an advocate with the Father. With the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Meaning that the Lord intercedes for us as he does right now at the Father's right hand. As he presents the basis for which God's people may receive the forgiveness of their sins. When they sin, even sins of the present and even sins to come. So that uh, we will always have Christ being our lawyer, as it were, before the tribunal of God the Father to plead our case and to always win our case up to the last day when we will stand before God and when he will ask us, why should I let you into my heaven? And you won't even have to say a word because the one beside you, your lawyer, is Jesus Christ. And he will say to the Father, because he is bought with my precious blood. He is clothed in my perfect righteousness. He is risen with me. And because he is, he is justified. And he has my righteousness so that he is accepted in me, my faith, in my blood, in my righteousness, in my name. And that's why, Father, you should let him into our kingdom. So he has an end with the judge, who is the father. And he is the judge as well, other scriptures teach. So that, can I say, it's a win-win situation when Jesus Christ is your lawyer. Well, the Holy Spirit is an advocate of another kind. While Jesus Christ is the court-appointed lawyer, as it were, of all God's people, the Holy Spirit is an advocacy person in that he has a role of convicting and convincing men, the world of its need of a savior through our testimony. Back in our 
passage, John 16 and verse 8. And when he is come, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will reprove, that is, he will convict, he will convince, he will remonstrate with the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. He will do that. Don't think that our labor is in vain when we're out there, even when they reject the word. Because, of course, we know we don't know if the terrors of today are, are going to be the weed of tomorrow, do we? But not only that, even if they never become the weed of tomorrow, our labor is not in vain because the work of the Holy Spirit is being accomplished. Notice, Christ did not say convict and convert the world, although he does that. He's the only one that does that. But not always does he do that. The world, will, the world will hear of sin, as he says in verse 9, because they believe not on me. There are many sins, but the sin of sins, the besetting sin that will damn your soul to eternal hell, is not believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, it's that simple. Yes, it's the simplicity which is in Christ. Though unconverted sinners will be punished for all their sins, it is the sin of rejecting the Savior that will land them in the lake of fire in the first place. The world will hear, in verse, according to verse 10, of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. For Christ fulfilled all righteousness. In fact, that was the basis upon which he was baptized by John the baptizer, that we would fulfill all righteousness. You in baptizing me and then me in carrying out the purpose, the mandate of the gospel. And that is in fulfilling all righteousness for my people. According to the perfect demands of God's law, his holy law, for a holy and righteous God. He would earn eternal life for everyone who believes in him, who trusts in him. He will earn eternal life for himself. And so he will lead the way into heaven and prepare a place for his people to come. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The world thoroughly will hear, according to verse 11, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. The prince of this world it's the same one as is described in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4, called the God of this world. They are one and the same. They are Satan, the stumbling block of sinners into the kingdom of God. And so in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, we read, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Though Jesus' death looks like Satan's victory, his greatest victory, if you will, rather it would finally be Satan's ultimate destruction. It says in Colossians 2.15, with regard to the work of Christ, and having spoiled principalities and powers, and whose are those? But Satan, the evil one, the one against whom we wrestle as Christians, 
For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It says that Jesus is the one who spoiled or who ruined those principalities. Not just man who can ruin an election. It's not just men who could ruin a country by their evil conduct and lawless behavior. But Christ has that authority to ruin those who are doing evil. And then it says he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, meaning in his work. Read it for yourself, Colossians 2.15. The world has been warned. Whenever you give the gospel, always, always remember to tell them of the coming judgment it is a, that it is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. Notice, it's not just death that's the end of it all. Like I said to someone the other day at the beach, I said, it just doesn't end with death. I mean, it would be, in a sense, it would be great if it, if it, if it ended with death, but it doesn't end with physical death. My friend, there is a judgment to come when you will stand before God and give an account of yourself, your sins against a holy God. Are you ready? Do you have Christ? Now, Christ, upon his complete, completing this triad of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting or reproving men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, goes back to his teaching them. And he says, and, and, and let me say this, that uh, uh, one, of the, one of the other reasons, because I, I started out telling you what are good reasons why, why the disciples should not feel down and out, lonely and in despair, because they will soon be forsaken, as it were, of their Savior. And that's this. Christ won't stop teaching them. His teaching continues. He says in verse 12, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. You're not ready for them. You know how it is how teaching a young person about uh, theology, for example, it's like you can only teach so much and then you have to back off, right? And it's the same way with all of us. And so it was with the disciples. There were many things that Christ had yet to teach them, but just didn't have the time. They weren't ready for it. And so we have so much to learn and so little time, as it were, to learn it. But notice what he says in verse 13 of, of John 16. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Whoa. When the Holy Spirit is through, as it were, with those disciples, at least with some of them, and with others who are disciples of those disciples, such as Mark, they will be the inspired writers of more revelation from God to explain the work of Christ, and that would be their purpose. That is the purpose of the New Testament. The Old Testament is to tell us of Christ to come. 
The New Testament is to tell us about Christ who came and lived and died and rose again from the dead. And so they would explain, and especially certain ones, particularly the Apostle Paul, one called out of due time, as he says, one who was like an aborted fetus that came back to life, is the description in the original, would explain Christ's coming, Christ's living, Christ's ministry, Christ's death, particularly Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, Christ's heavenly session at the Father's right hand, and his second coming. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, he said, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. That's his role. Isn't that exciting to think that that same Holy Spirit abides in us? All things that the Father hath are mine, he goes on to say. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. It's as good as if I myself touch it. Perhaps better. Because the Holy Spirit has an inside track. He is the person that has the inside track. And so it is as if Jesus never left them. It's as if Jesus was still in them. In fact, the Apostle Paul declared in Colossians 1.27, I always marvel at this statement, this, tuck, this verse that's like a gem in the rough, just tucked in there, in, in the midst of Paul's ministering to the saints at Colossae. Right at the very beginning of his explaining his ministry of preaching and of discipline and teaching and, uh, and, and that for the purpose of presenting people who are mature and who are like Christ in the day of judgment. It says in verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And you know what the mystery is? Yes, it is the scriptures. As Paul would elaborate in another book, in the book of Romans at the end. But the mystery is this which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in us. And that the presence of Christ by the Holy Spirit is in us. Think about that. Soak that one in. Meditate on it. Think who you have in your life. Think of the glory of God that is in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You know, we think, oh, if only I were back in the time of, of Jesus with the disciples walking with the Lord, hearing his words, seeing his miracles. My Christian life would probably be so much better. I'd probably be more motivated to serve him. Would you? Would we? Look at what the first disciples experienced. Would it have been any easier for you, considering how martyrdom was practically for every one of those disciples but one? Who, that is John, would be exiled to live a life of isolation on the island of Patmos? 
And actually, when you stop and think about it, the times now are probably more perilous than ever. But like the disciples found out, we too are not alone, but we have the Holy Spirit. And we know so much more because we have the completed scriptures of the Holy Spirit. And we have the resident teacher living in us as he did in them. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And because of the Holy Spirit, we know Jesus. And we love Jesus and have that passion to serve him. And also because he continues to teach us and to help us spiritually, we continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Does knowing the presence and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit in you convict you too? I trust that it does. As Paul would say in that uh, very sublime statement of faith, profession of Christ, confession of faith, in Philippians 3, 9 through 11, and I'll conclude with this, Philippians 3, 9 through 11. Let me read verse 8 as well. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and who count them but dung, meaning leftovers that you don't want to eat anymore and just throw away that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him. That's my goal. That's my goal. That's what I press toward. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And there's a lot there that deserves another sermon. But be it sufficient to say that what Paul is saying is that when I have the Holy Spirit, I'm content. Because he is the one that will enable me to know my Savior and to know the power of his resurrection and also the fellowship of his sufferings. And that will be a privilege to carry my cross and to be made conformable unto his death that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Next time, um, he will continue. He will continue in his explaining what he meant when he says, it is expedient for you that I go away. Because yes, it is expedient because only then will the Holy Spirit come. But the path that that will take, the path that that, that will take, Christ must complete his mission before the Holy Spirit can begin his.
And that's where we start next time with verse 16 of John 16. A little while, and yet, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. And with that, let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the words of our Lord. And we are thankful for his teaching about how we are not without help. Even the one who is called the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our advocate, our helper. Help us, O oh God, that we might understand these matters and that especially we might be drawn evermore to press forward to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That we may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and made conformable to his death that we may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. 